Well, we are walking, uh, well, you all are walking through the Gospel of Luke as a community. Uh, I think the rest of Colossae did that, but they finished a long time ago. So, uh, <laughs> so you're still walking through the Gospel of Luke, which is awesome. I love the Gospel of Luke. And um, I believe last, Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Right? He's, uh, remember back in chapter 9, he set out resolutely on his mission to go to Jerusalem and die. And, uh, and now... He's there, and he's symbolically cleansed the temple, challenging the entire religious system, and it's provoked the religious leaders. So we're there in the story. The religious power players in Jerusalem are really uh, opposed to Jesus, and this part of the story reveals this contrast as Jesus teaches and and acts within this Jerusalem uh, environment this contrast between the people who are taking him at his word. They're just, they're absolutely taking his word to heart and ordering life around what he's saying. And then there are those who are rejecting his word and rejecting his way of showing God's rule and his reign, also known as the kingdom of God. And so uh, this contrast is also true in our own lives, right? Following Jesus, uh, aligning our lives with Jesus and his kingdom ways, it's not a one-time decision, is it? It's like a daily crisis where we have to ask ourselves, am I taking Jesus at his word? Am I ordering my life around that? Or am I, am I playing a game here where I am actually trying to manage my own life? And what I want to do today is I want to look at these four snippets of uh, the Gospel of Luke from this vantage point of trust, right? Um, What we make of Jesus, what we think of him, the picture that comes to mind when we think of Jesus determines the degree of trust we will have. And trust always takes shape by, by looking at Jesus, taking him at his word, and ordering life accordingly. And on the other hand, mistrust also stands on some very particular soil, right? So it's interesting. I think we often think if I'm not trusting Jesus, it's because trusting him is really risky. Um, But what we often fail to notice is that mistrust also stands on faith, right? It's a different kind of faith. And and I want to show you this morning the ways that mistrust also stands on shaky ground when we fail to take Jesus at his word. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at two ways mistrust takes shape in our life and what trust looks like, where it ultimately leads and how we get there, okay? So let's begin with chapter 20, verse 27. We didn't get to read this part because it's kind of long, so bear with me as we take a look at Jesus' initial, uh, I'm sorry, Luke's initial introduction to this, this section. Uh, There came to Jesus some Sadducees, it's a religious uh, Jewish sect within the first century world of Jesus, some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a a wife but no children, uh, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the man be? For the seven uh, had her as a wife. 
So how many angels can dance on the head of a needle, right? Like that's kind of like the nonsense of the question, right? That's kind of what's going on. What I want to say to you, first of all, our first kind of point this morning is that the first aspect of mistrust that I want to show you today shows us uh, that, that mistrust stands on the shaky ground of speculation, where my speculation becomes grounds to reject what Jesus is saying. And so during Jesus' day, there are multiple forms of Judaism. There are the Pharisees who are kind of like the, the moral uh, uh, conservatives. There are the zealots who are the revolutionaries. Right? They pray their prayers and sharpen their swords. And then there are the Essenes who quit life and want to go hide in the cave and wait for the end of the world. And then there are the Sadducees. And these guys have, they're the aristocratic class. They're the elite. They're actually the ones with the, the, the influence in the culture at a very high level. And they're in charge of the temple system. And they're often very wealthy. And so they're very invested in maintaining the status quo. And so uh, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> it's a great classic preacher joke. I, had to, I just couldn't walk away from it. It's like a car accident. You have to look. So, um, so, but they they had this outlook on life where they didn't see a resurrection coming. They didn't believe in uh, angels or demons or those sorts of things. They're very materialistic. They're kind of a modern day liberal, if you will. Right? Like we're just uh, that's their 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 disbelief. However, in the resurrection, isn't the exact same as a modern person. Right? A modern person would say, "Well, I don't know that there's life after death. You can't really verify that." And, Right? And so we just kind of write off the supernatural here in the West. These guys, they were Jews. They believed in Yahweh. They believed in the first five books of the Old Testament that they were inspired, if you will. And so when they spoke of rejecting the resurrection, they weren't just talking about life after death. What they were actually envisioning was a very particular Jewish story where the creator God would resurrect all Israel at the end of the age and perhaps all humanity, and he would physically recreate the physical world, and we would live in that world. And it was a hope of a coming event in which God would right every wrong, wipe every tear, right? And uh, there would be an ongoing earthly existence, but of a kind of different order. It wasn't resurrection in, uh, in general that they rejected. We all know that dead people stay dead. It was resurrection in particular that they were rejecting, that this type of story... They, did, they, did, they just weren't buying it, okay? And so their attitude towards much of the spiritual world was kind of skeptical, incredulous. And, and so they, uh, with many people in history, when you are the power group, when you are the group that is trying to maintain a status quo, things like resurrection and the spiritual world can disrupt that status quo. And so you kind of want to push that out of your picture, I read a footnote this week that was kind of interesting. They had this sneer, this joke that they would offer, the Sadducees would. They'd say, well, do resurrected people have to go through ritual cleansing because they've had contact with a corpse? Good one, guys. You know, So that's their attitude. This was that's their attitude. And so they concoct an abstract scenario for Jesus to trap him. And it showcases their unwillingness to trust what he's saying and doing as he announces and demonstrates God's in-breaking kingdom and rule in their midst. And by the way, resurrection was kind of at the heart of what Jesus was saying. That his reign and rule would come by his death, 
in Jerusalem and subsequent resurrection that would become a first fruits. And so that is, that is, so rejecting resurrection for them is also a way of rejecting Jesus. And so they say that if the resurrection's real, then how in the world would this scenario play out, right? Because, uh, you know, it's like, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do with this situa- situation? So they make up a story about a woman who is married to a man who dies. And based on what was called leveret marriage or leveret marriage, where the Torah in Deuteronomy 25 instructs Israelites to provide widows within their family with offspring so that the, the family names will not die out, so that the tribes of Israel will continue, okay? Um, you can read about the command in Deuteronomy 25.5. It says this. It's super interesting, right? If, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall be married, uh, not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And um, the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that uh, his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so it's a way of preserving the family legacy, lineage, uh, and inheritance. It was actually a supply of provision for a woman in ancient Israel to not become marginalized and impoverished. It totally sounds totally backwards to us, but it was a compassionate law to make sure, right? Like, this lady doesn't go starve and have to beg, right? It was a way of keeping her um, a part of a valued fabric of society. And in fact, if, if one of these brothers didn't fulfill the law, you can read more in Deuteronomy 25, the woman had the right to take a brother who refused to marry her, to take her in front of the town elders, pull off his sandal and spit on his face. It's in the Bible, okay? <clears throat> so don't do that if you just have general in-law problems, right? Like just that's, that's a specific time for Israel. And so they say, based on this law in the Torah, let's say a woman ends up having seven husbands, no kids, they all die, who's she married to in the resurrection? It's a totally abstracted exception to the rule, right? It's the normal covenant life of Israel, uh, it, it, this is not a part of the norm. And so it's this very speculative argument right, to, to distract from the teaching of Jesus. In other words, they pick the one passage in the Old Testament that kind of creates tension it actually, I mean, it appears to create tension. It probably doesn't. According to Jesus, it doesn't at all. And say, well, what do you do with this scenario? Resurrection can't be real because how would this play out? Okay, where does this all connect to your own life, right? I hope you didn't come in here worrying about marrying an in-law if your current spouse dies. Like, if that's you, we have very special counseling for you after the service. Like, meet Justin. Uh, he'll take care of you, all right? But... Um, how does this actually intersect with us? Here's what the Sadducees are doing. It's, it's actually something we all do. They've built a very speculative framework off of a small bit of information, and it precludes them from feeling obligated to hearing the rest of what Jesus has to say. We do this when we grab a tiny bit of information and we hold on to it And we exclude the rest of what Jesus has to say because we think, based on speculating on that little bit of information, that we know the whole picture of the truth. In other words, they have a predetermined picture of the truth that excludes what Jesus is saying and doing right in front of them. 
And the reality for us is that quite often we bring our own assumptions to the table and it clouds our view of God in such a way that we actually don't trust him. We don't trust him not because he's not trustworthy. We don't trust him because we have an assumption that says he's not trustworthy on some level. And a predetermined view of truth, apart from Jesus' words, will always limit how much you can take Jesus at his word. Where maybe you're here today and you're ready to accept that Jesus was a good moral example and maybe even a profound teacher. But you've brought a condition with you on just how far you'll trust what he has to say. That there are conditions or assumptions about how trustworthy he really is. I'll I'll take him at his word up to this point, whatever your condition is. I don't know what that condition might be for you today, but if you have one, that's your real authority. All of our conditions, all of our but firsts in the life of faith are actually what our real God is. And that's the ground we're actually standing on. And it's usually speculative. I think we have a cultural moment right now where we have to be really aware of the conditions that we put on Jesus culturally. Where his teaching maybe on loving enemies might seem easy to accept, unless you actually have enemies and you know how hard it is to accept. Right? where you think, yeah, I love that love your enemies thing, but his sexual ethic, I don't know. When it comes to, that's just, that seems outdated, right? Or, or maybe for you, you can buy the, his whole sexual ethic, but when it comes to money and possessions, well, he was single and he didn't have a mortgage, so I, it, I just can't quite accept his view of possessions because it's, it's so ancient, right? See, when we have a predetermined view of the truth, it limits how far we're willing to take him at his word. I could go on probably for a long time with examples, but the point here is that um, when we have a well-established assumption in our minds, perhaps that God is not good or that he's not actually loving, it will limit how far we will take Jesus at his word. And so I just want to lean into a question for us this morning, which is, Where am I actually standing on speculation today? What speculation do I stand on that limits how far I'll let Jesus lead me? Where do I have a bit of information that has now become a scaffolding, right? That keeps me from taking Jesus at his word. Perhaps it's suffering, right? That uh, maybe I have this speculative idea that God would never allow an innocent person to suffer Justly, And so therefore, when I experience suffering, God is to blame. Or, or maybe, right, it's that we should all be able to do what we want to make us happy. And therefore, I can't take Jesus at his word that I'll be most happy when I deny myself. What have I built my view of the truth around? Right? And then how do I reshape it around what Jesus says? This is the first way that mistrust works. It, it builds an entire way of life around speculation. And it keeps us from taking him at his word before he ever says anything. Now here's the, the second way we move toward mistrust. Right? This is good news. We move towards mistrust in more than one way. If, you, if the first view is not you today, maybe the second way is. Right? We just have to re- be aware of our traps that we fall into. So the second way we move towards mistrust is by standing on the shaky ground of approval. 
where we have a predetermined view of where our worth comes from. Listen to what Jesus says in this next section, verse 45. He says, um, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. These are the religious, uh, well, I'll describe them in a second. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. All right. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> like, like, whoa. He says it's in front of everyone, right? Now, the, the scribes he's dis, describing, these are essentially the Bible teachers of the day, and they're also legal experts. So it's kind of like if you have a pastor and a lawyer that walk into a bar, you only have one guy, right? That's, like, that's, that's the scenario. There it was, sorry. Perhaps second out. Maybe I'll just drop the joke. I don't know. Um, so... This, that's who they are. They're, they're legal experts, they're lawyers and Bible teachers, because again, in ancient Israel, all of the social life is woven through their belief in Israel's God and the scriptures. And, and so he's saying, look at these guys, watch out for their way of life, avoid it at all costs. So why? Well, their mistrust, Jesus is saying, their mistrust in my ways and my word is demonstrated in this. That they're more concerned about what people think about them than what they actually are, right? They're they're more concerned with their image and their reputation than their character. They're more concerned with approval than reality. And and culturally, these these guys are very elite. They're, They're icons of success. And Jesus sees right through their sham importance, as he does with all of us. And they have a predetermined sense of worth, right? That it is in the eyes of others, right? That their worth has to do with their status and the approval of others. And he has a warning for us as he describes their way of life. He says, this is how you know you have a predetermined view of where your worth comes from, where you view your worth as coming from your image and the perceptions of others. You'll live like them. See, they like to walk around in flowing robes. This is a warning that stands for today. Like, if you want to walk around in a flowing robe, we're all going to look at you sideways. Um, no, it's just odd. Um, but here's the deal. A robe is this expensive, ornate thing that would basically say, I've, I've arrived. It's, a very, it's, it's fashion, but in the ancient world, it would say, you have wealth and you have status. It's like clothes today. Then he says they love to be greeted with respect in the market. So it's the attention of others, the recognition in the public arena that drives these guys. They love that formal greeting. It's a way of staking a claim on their importance. And I think the modern day marketplace for us is very clearly our social media, right? Where we have this opportunity to exploit... Um, the, this, this technology in a way where we can look really great, right? And we can put forward an image for people to praise. And they love to have the most important seats in the synagogue. This was this bench that sat at the front of the congregation. 
right? And so they would sit up on a bench and look at the people, and people would look at them, and they would be the ones that would basically say, I'm higher up on the hierarchy. And that is what pride ultimately does. It compares itself to others. You starve that, and pride will go hungry. Right? It, it rates our worth on being able to outrank someone else. That's what pride does, which then has to then make another person worth less than you, which is diametrically opposed to the kingdom Jesus has been announcing and demonstrating. And so Jesus here is saying that we all trust something. We stand on ground somewhere and evaluate things from that place. And if you stand on the ground of seeking approval and status and attention and importance from others, it's actually really shaky ground. Because you'll either end up very, very prideful Right? Constantly exhausted trying to maintain that approval. Or you're going to end up um, really depressed because you don't have it. Right? it. It will shake you to the core. And so he says this form of mistrust is headed in a direction of condemnation. Right? Because the thing we stand on will justify us or condemn us. Right? And he's saying, look, the pursuit of the approval of other people will always lead you away from the one who can actually take our condemnation and give you lasting worth. The only one worth trusting because he's actually stood in your place. And so when you stand on him, it's not shaky ground, it's firm ground. And he knows that we're tempted regularly to measure our worth by comparisons. And by the attention we receive and the applause we get from other people. And when we move towards others to get our worth, we're revealing we have a fundamental mistrust that God alone can give us our true worth. And actually, if um, others give you your worth, there's no telling just how far you'll go to maintain it. Right? And so what he's saying is these people have made a judgment about God's insufficiency to determine their worth. Perhaps we're in the same boat because we think that maybe we're not worth much to God. And therefore we settle for the imitations of value and approval and worth from others. Either way, Jesus says, beware. Don't go there. Be aware of constantly caring about what other people think of you because it's a misjudgment of where your worth truly comes from. Which leads to the story that provides the contrast, the example, if you will. In uh, chapter 21, verse 1, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box there at the temple courts. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins And then he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I think this is profound. This story has always been one of those challenge stories for me. He he, he moves from criticizing the guys who are at the top of the social world. They are the icons of success. And now he elevates and he praises this woman who is at the bottom of the social world. She is an icon of destitution and powerlessness. And in the eyes of Jesus, she's more than 
She's given more. She is somehow elevated. It's a woman who's been labeled less than her whole life, I, I imagine. And that now she is designated in the words of the Savior as more than. Um, and so people in Jesus' day would offer to the work of the ministry, they would offer money. And these, there would be these 13 ram-shaped receptacles that you could throw your change in. So when you threw in your money and you threw in a lot, it would make a lot of noise. It would be pretty pretty cool, right? So uh, it's not quite the basket or the online giving we have now, right? If you really want to be celebrated, maybe you can have like a little alarm go off on your phone when it goes like, ah, my money went through. <laughs> I don't know. We can work on that. We don't have an app here in Hillsborough yet, do we? Let's get on that. Um, uh, I would be backwards to what Jesus is saying here, right? He's saying, actually, she throws in to lepta, um, and just for some perspective, the two coins she throws in are worth about five minutes of standard labor at minimum wage. Five minutes work at minimum wage. That's two pennies, okay? That's what she throws in. And it's all she had to live on, Jesus says. Right? She's destitute. And so he goes, she's put in more than everyone else. Right? And when it comes to our giving, I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't actually count. He seems to weigh. Right? Like that's actually what's going on here. He, he looks not so much at how much we give, but I think at how much is left. And, and he, some people you know, have literally nothing of any financial value in worldly terms, and yet uh, they seem to be offering something that in God's eyes is a maximum gift. The rich can give vast amounts, but their giving doesn't begin to impinge on their status. Right? They're still rich after they've given. Right? And so it doesn't actually put a dent on the lifestyle, but this woman gives all. Uh, to give this kind of gift is a reversal I'm sorry, not a reversal. Well, it is. It's a reversal of everything that we've just seen from the stingy mistrust of the Sadducees and the arrogant mistrust of the scribes. She's reversing all of that. And what she's doing is she's revealing her total trust and reliance on God for her life. She's destitute. Her next two cents are literally going to have to come from the Lord. Like she doesn't have a reserve account. And so what Jesus is saying here, I think it's really profound. Um, he's saying that out of her poverty, she gave all she had to live on. The word for live on isn't, um, it's not a functional word. It's actually it's the word where we get biology. He's saying she gave her life. Like out of her poverty, she gave all of her life. So what he's saying is this isn't just a monetary thing. It's an integrated trust where she's ex giving an example of a life devoted to God that is whole life. Giving our life won't be less than financial, but it will be far more if we are living lives under God's reign and rule because God's kingdom is integrative. It's holistic. Do you see the contrast here between this widow and these, these power elite kind of guys? You can resist taking God at his word when you stand on the speculative what ifs. You can resist taking God at his word when you stand on the constant need to get approval from others. Both ways erode trust. But when you look at the widow, 
She's an iconic vision of trust. And it, and it shows where trust always leads. And here's where trust always leads. Genuine trust will always lead to a generous sacrifice. It just will. It will lead to an open hand to the living God. And so this story that, that I think helps us see this just in terms of biblical context is when you go back to the very first offering in the Bible, the very first gift, what is it? Genesis chapter 4, where you have Cain and Abel, these two brothers. One, Cain, offers some grain, and Abel offers a sacrifice, right, his, um, of, of the, the firstborn of his flock. And I don't think it's an illustration that God likes barbecue more than cereal. Like, I actually think that what Hebrews 11 says is that Abel offered in faith, right? That God is not just pleased with the stuff you offer, He's pleased with where it comes from. And so God is actually pleased with sacrifice that comes from faith, from trust. A life that takes Jesus at his word is a life that moves towards a surrender and a sacrifice and a life that gives out. Maybe you're thinking, okay, this is crushing. I don't know how I get there. Here's how I think this text helps us out. I think there's good news here for us. This is not just one more moral thing that is put over your shoulders for you to just perform harder at being generous. How do you get to this place where the widow is, where she's able to live out of this generous trust? Um, When you go back, um, when you go back to chapter 20, verse 41, Jesus asks the religious leaders a question. He says, how is it that they say the Messiah, the Christ, is David's son. Right? This goes back to King David and the promise in 2 Samuel 7 where God says, uh, your son will sit on a throne whose kingdom will never end. There will be an eternal king out of your line. Right? And so uh, David in a psalm says, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, his master, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus goes, David calls him Lord. How is he his son? What Jesus is getting at here is no patriarch in the ancient world would ever refer to their future offspring as their master. The patriarch is always the master. And so an offspring, an heir, is little buddy. Okay, like never Lord, never master. So how is it that David is saying, right, that this Messiah is his master? How is it that the greatest king in Israel is referring to a king who comes far later as his Lord? And what Jesus is getting at is he's saying, do you understand the category that the Messiah fits in, right? That the Messiah is the master even to the greatest king in all Israel, that he's the Lord. The greatest king in all Israel considered his future heir to be his own master. And what that does is it adjusts our understanding of who Jesus is and the category he fits in. Because David's Lord isn't the kind of person that you make your personal assistant. Okay? This is not. Like, that's what he's saying, right? Like, he's not the kind of person that you take bits and pieces from. Well, I like this part, but not this part. 
No, this is a ruler's ruler. This is a person who has true authority. This is a person who gets to confront all my speculation. This is the kind of person who determines what true worth really is and where it comes from. And so he needs to be able to recalibrate what I think is true. And and he also needs to be able to recalibrate what I think is truly valuable. But what Jesus is getting at here is if he's in that category, that he is a ruler like that, at the same time, he's a ruler who gives everything he had in order um, to reconcile his enemies to himself. Right? He offers a greater, more generous sacrifice than the widow. He's not only Lord, right? he's the kind of Lord who will give himself to reconcile enemies, the kind of Lord who will bear the curse of sin and become condemned so we might be made righteous. Therefore, if he's the Lord, right, and he offers himself in sacrificial love, then what he's saying is, right, that needs to confront where I find my worth, right? If he's the Lord of all, then that confronts what I find true. If he's the Lord who gives everything for me, then that confronts what I, where I think my worth is. Are you, are you with me? Do you see this? See, um, you see how absolutely everything hinges on our picture of Jesus, right? See, the only way we'll find ourselves able and motivated to take Jesus at his word to the degree that this widow was is to see that he's actually transcendent and above us, and at the same time, he's the true widow who gives everything, not two pennies, but his entire life. That he's the kind of Lord who's utterly generous and who becomes a servant king, who becomes lowly, more lowly than a widow. He becomes truly destitute. He loses the father. He loses everything. And when you see that Jesus is that kind of ruler, you're able to readjust how you live. Right? You're, you're able to now trust him in a way that maybe you couldn't before. You'll be able to live like the widow, right? and you'll be able to reject speculation because you've seen his love proven. You'll be able to reject looking for approval in others because you've found an approval that far transcends what anybody else can offer you. And when you see Jesus like this, you'll actually want to live like the widow. It will be freeing for you to give your life because you've now found your life in the one who gave his for you. And what I want to say to you this morning is that she maps the way forward for us as people of faith. That her giving comes out of a place of deficit. Notice that it was out of her poverty that she gave her life. For you today, it's out of your what is God calling you to give? What is the Spirit saying? Perhaps, all right, some of you maybe have two pennies worth of time. Maybe two pennies worth of what you feel like are your talents. Maybe two pennies of what it feels like is capacity to build relationships. Or maybe even two pennies worth of finances. But I want to say to you this morning, if you wait until you have time, you won't start serving. If you wait until you have money, you won't start giving. If you wait until you feel like it, you won't start forgiving If you wait until you like someone, you'll never start loving them. So maybe today it's out of your hurt that God is asking you to give your forgiveness. Maybe today it's out of your conflicting and competing desires that you will give your obedience. Or maybe today it's out of your busyness that you'll give your time to be present to him and others. I want to suggest 
if you look at Jesus as the true greater widow, you will find yourself free to give of yourself. Let's pray as we go to the tables this morning to remember the one who has given all for us. Where we go to the table to remind ourselves where our true worth is and the true story that grounds us in our identity going forward.